Look, the reading is found on page 1,226 of the Bibles in the chairs. And we're looking, starting at 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. So that's page 1,226, 1 John chapter 2, starting to read at verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, if you look at 1 John 3, starting at verse 1. How great is the, Father, is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purify himself, purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions 
and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. 1 John 4 verse 1 Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is born from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. This is the word of the Lord. And um, just to remind ourselves of the situation, we've seen that uh, John was writing to this early Christian church and the church had been established by apostles like himself, but they had been infiltrated by those with a very different worldview. It may have come about, uh, um, it may have come across as exciting or cool or an in thing or a touch of the esoteric with its secret knowledge because actually being in possession of something that other people don't know kind of does make you feel a little bit kind of, um, well, exclusive, if not a bit elitist. And that always has its attractions. But although they used Christian vocabulary and they sounded Christians, they weren't. We read in chapter 1 how they um, were there to try and lead the Christians astray. Chapter 3, verse 7. So obviously a question arises is how can he help them be able to identify who these false teachers are? Should any others pitch up? What are the telltale signs that give them away? And although we've seen that uh, they've largely failed to do so, it does seem that these people who had infiltrated them had failed to convince the core of the Christian church there, and then they had gone out from them. But nonetheless, the Christians left in that church, um, reading between the lines, were quite unsettled by all that experience and they lacked something of assurance or confidence in their Christian faith. The promise of the secret knowledge and, if we're honest, the less costly, less demanding discipleship that was on offer from these uh, false teachers may have um, kind of got the Christians in there thinking, had they missed something? I mean, is the kind of Christian faith that the apostles are calling us to 
just a little bit too countercultural, too uh, demanding? Well, John writes to them as, my dear children, or my dear friends, he writes. He clearly holds them very close to his own heart. And he sets out to explain how they can spot these religious phonies and in the process gain assurance for themselves. Both um, objectives are satisfied by the application of three assessment criteria. Hence, this is the second assessment because um, recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we identified those three tests. You may remember then that I realized that um, these, the, the chunks that I've uh, set us sometimes are far too long and we ditched one of the tests, we didn't cover it. And we'll do the same this evening. Last time we didn't cover the doctrinal test, we just did the social test, which was uh, love, and the moral test, which was obedience. We didn't do the doctrinal test, which is about belief, about worldview, about understanding reality. This time, we'll skate over the social test, the test of love in verses 11 to 18. But when we come to um, look at it again, because John repeats himself, and he has a kind of third cycle of assessments, we will then just cover the social and the moral test and not the doctrinal test for a third time. There is also a gap in um, about five verses of 19 to 24, which will be dealt with next week because they don't form part of the main kind of argument that he's doing with these tests. So, I suppose before you start, the, 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 what you might well be thinking that, um, why should they follow what John says rather than what these kind of newbie teachers are saying? And John's answer he gave at the very beginning of John chapter 1. He points out, that we, that means himself and the other apostles, have seen, heard, and touched Jesus. Unlike these kind of newbies, he was an original. He had a three-year, if you like, apprenticeship or par learning partnership with Jesus. You know, he was very privileged. You know, he was able to be with Jesus, observe him for three whole years, what he said, what he did, what his character was like. And then, of course, he was particularly privileged in seeing the resurrected Christ and having that intensive period of teaching for six weeks between the resurrection and the ascension. He has the real knowledge because he's encountered the real God in human form. They haven't. They've dreamt it up out of their tiny little minds. So, previously, the believer has been identified by John as someone who knows God, is in Christ and in the light, and who lives or continues or abides, depends which translation you're using, in the Father and the Son. They're all in uh, chapter 2. And now this time, the true believer is also said to be born of God. Remember in John 3, the Gospel, Nicodemus is told that he must be born again, and he's puzzled. Well, they now know how you can be born again. God is our Father. He imparts life to us, 
and that affects a change in us so that we provide evidence of being born of God. So much so that the one born of God is said to not continue in sin, verse 9 of chapter 3. He or she will instead cultivate righteousness or the right way to live, the God-designed way to live, 2.29. He or she will love fellow Christians, 3.10 and 14. And he or she will believe that Jesus is the Christ come in human form, 5.1. So let's examine and apply just two of these tests a little more closely. The moral one in more depth than the doctrinal one. The moral one covers uh, verses 28 of chapter 2 to verse 10 of chapter 3. So the first proof of being a genuine Christian and not a phony one is how do you live? John links right living with the two appearances of Christ. His future appearing in verses 28 to verse 3 of chapter 3 and his past appearing in verses 4 to 10 of chapter 3. And the theme throughout is being that righteous conduct or rather unrighteous conduct is unthinkable in a Christian who grasps the fact of Christ's first appearance and whose hope is in Christ's second appearance. And both of those perspectives provide incentives, they're motivators towards living a life of holiness. So think about your life in the context that Christ is going to return again. That's what he's saying. So we have 28 to verse 3. See, the Christian life is experiential. It is a living, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's not some kind of high, the kind of experience uh, you might get if your team happens to win a major tournament. We might not be able to identify with that at this present time. Um, or your band has literally a mind-blowing gig at Glastonbury or somewhere. No, it is a rich, a personal relationship, but one which has moral consequences. To become a Christian is, uh, in the first place, it requires us to have a moral about turn. We have to renounce our old life, and we have to resolve with the help of God to live his way. Of life and so we must continue in him in that way of life so that at the second coming when the world comes to an end there is a day of judgment and there is a fantastic recreation of uh, heaven and earth which are brought together we can on that day appear before Christ with confidence rather than be ashamed What a confident position that would be to be in. Whether you happen to know when you're going to die, which I don't think any of you here do, but there are from time to time people in church who know that they have a terminal illness and they know, they may not know precisely, but they do know they might have only a matter of months left to live. Or whether, as in the case of most of us, 
we don't know when we're going to die. But you can never be uh, too young to not be aware that you might do. I just reflected on my seven years at secondary school, and I can certainly remember two guys who had died whilst they were teenagers. One was knocked off his bike on the way to school. The other one just dropped down dead playing hockey. Had some kind of congenital heart defect which no one had ever picked up on. So we must be ready to face to die whenever it should happen. And we must be in a position where we are confident. Confident because we have peace with Christ. Confident because we know that to the best of our ability, we are trying to live a holy life. And our failures will hopefully become fewer. Two words are used of that great day, his coming and his appearing. The word for coming was often used of a returning, conquering Roman general at the head of his legions into Rome with all his kind of, you know, all the things he basically nicked off of all the people he conquered. And it was also used when some significant ambassador turned up to enter Rome to report before either the Senate or Caesar. And appearing was used as somebody who's, who just turns up. So we're talking about the personal presence of one who is now absent when we're thinking about Christ and the second coming, and also the visible appearance of one who is now unseen, but who will on that day be seen. And on that day, our aim is to be confident and not ashamed. That's an incentive. And so which will you be like? John wants the moral quality of their lives to give them confidence. And at the second coming of Christ, which is also the day of judgment. And it's only if we continue in him that we shall have that confidence in him. What should enable the Christian to live the right kind of life, righteousness, is this. The Christian has been born of him, born of Christ. Elsewhere he talks about the Christian being born of God or being born of the Holy Spirit. It all amounts to the same thing. We couldn't discern whether we're communicating with the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, because to us they'd all be the same. They have the same character. The thought is that a child exhibits the parent's characteristics because he shares the parent's moral values. Righteousness is evidence of this new birth. And then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, he marvels at the gift of this great relationship. Picture it. I mean, imagine that uh, you are an orphan. You can put it in any century you like. You can any continent you like. If it was in this century, it may be that you were born in Africa and your parents died of AIDS. If you were born in 19th century Victorian England, it may be that your father was killed in a mine accident and your mother died of some infectious diseases and you are put basically in an orphanage. You're an Oliver Twist, if you like. Now imagine that out of that, you are plucked by God 
the Heavenly Father, that you now have a relationship with a human being who is your parent. You have been adopted into God's family. That's why he uses this kind of extravagant language. And we gain the divine nature, the divine characteristics, so that we can live the kind of life that our Heavenly Father wants us to live. We acquire the status of a son, a child of God. We're no longer orphans without any parents, but we are children with a father. And the world, he says, doesn't understand what's going on in that kind of um, talk. They don't realize their position as effectively abandoned spiritual orphans. They don't realize that there's a God, a heavenly father, who wants to take them into his own family. It's literally another world to them. And that's why they don't understand Christians, because they don't know and understand God. In 3.2, he writes, Dear friends, literally beloved. You see, they're loved by God their Father, but they're also loved by this apostle John too. And he moves from what we are to what we should be. He doesn't know exactly what it's, gonna, what's it, what it's going to uh, be like at the second coming. He says, What we will be has not yet been made known. But we will do, he says, when Christ appears. However, he does add that we do know a little. He adds that we will be like him. So the sequence of thought is, he shall appear, we will see him, and we will be like him. That's the sequence of events. 3.3, three. so why does John write about the second coming of Christ? Well, not so much that they might be aware of it because they already know about it. It's more as this kind of motivator, this driver to live the right kind of life. And who, who has this hope in him? That person will be ready for the second coming of Christ. And they will, he says, purify themselves just as he is pure. Now, kind of in Old Testament religion, there was an awful lot of washing. In fact, in quite a lot of religions in the world, there's an awful lot of washing. I think because people instinctively know that somehow or other they are dirty before God, that they are kind of morally impure. And by going through some kind of external ritual, that is in some way kind of trying to... Um, I suppose, communicate to understand that they want to express some internal cleansing of themselves because they are aware that impurity bars access to God who is totally pure, in whom there is no moral imperfection. To purify means to be free from moral contamination. Now, John's already emphasized that since uh, Christ is righteous, we must practice righteousness if we do not want to be ashamed at his second coming. And similarly, since he is pure, when we see him, we will be like him. We must be purifying ourselves now in readiness. The hope of the second coming should motivate us to correct living now. And so should the fact of his first coming to which we now turn in verses 4 to 10. Christ's past appearing 
This time John's elaborating the moral test and he links it to the righteousness with Christ's first appearing in the past. So his argument as to why we should be righteous is not drawn from expectation uh, for the coming uh, when we will see him and be like him, but it's from the purpose of his first coming, which was, we read 3.5, to remove sins so that, we might, so that he might take away sins, John writes. And the other purpose of Christ's coming was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 8, we read, the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And on each of those two purposes, the argument that John uses is repeated each time with a different emphasis. So in verses 4 to 7, he's dealing with the nature of sin, which is lawlessness. In 8 to 10, he's dealing with the origin of sin, which is the devil. So, you start at verse 4, he starts with everyone who sins. The theme is the nature of sin. The purpose of Christ's appearing was to take away sins. And the logical conclusion in verse 6 is, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And then that pattern is repeated from verses 8 to 10. He starts off in 8. The one who does what, uh, who, who does, uh, who sins is sinful. And the origin of sin is then flagged up. And Christ's purpose in appearing was to destroy the works of the devil. And the logical conclusion is that no one born of God will continue in sin. So if we were to summarize um, that moral test, this is what we have. If Christ appeared in history to take away our sins and then to destroy the works of the devil... And if he will appear in the future so that we shall see him and be like him, how can we go on or continue living in sin? To do so would be to deny the purpose of his two appearings in the past and in the future. If we are to be loyal to his first coming and ready for his second coming, we must purify ourselves as he is pure. By doing so, we provide evidence that we're a genuine Christian, that we have been born again and have adopted our Father's character. As I mentioned uh, at the beginning, we'll pass over the social test and conclude with the doctrinal test about belief in chapter 4, 1 to 6. Now, too often today, much too often, image trumps substance. What someone looks like draws a following rather than what they are like. Presentation is preferred over content. With that kind of mindset, it's so easy to be taken in and led astray. And John is very concerned about this. He says to them, believe not every spirit. For John, you see, there is teaching which is expressed. There is the false prophet who expresses it. And behind that person, there is a spirit or influence. Whether that person is consciously aware of it 
or whether they are not aware of it, he doesn't say. But the ultimate source of any teaching, of any viewpoint, of any philosophy, of any kind of ism, is ultimately whether it comes from a benevolent source or a malevolent source, whether it comes from the divine or the diabolic. And the doctrinal test is used to assess the content of the teaching in 1 to 3. And this is how you know, he writes, or recognize the truth by assessing the content. And that will tell you the origin of it. And the test is also used to assess the character of the audience that he's writing to, verses 4 to 6. Genuine believers with a true Christian viewpoint are more likely to accept what he's teaching because they're genuine believers. So it's a passage about teachers and hearers. So the content of the teaching, one to three. And he commands them to test it. Because true faith um, has to examine its object before placing its confidence, its trust in someone, in what they're saying. I mean, if somebody asks you to marry them, you will have had to have weighed up whether that is a good idea or not. I don't know how many people do do that, but yes, you should do. You shouldn't just go by your subjective kind of feelings. You should have a pretty good, clear, thoughted, logical think about it. Because you're going to place your trust in that other person. And you see, if something isn't true, we should ignore it or refute it we mustn't trust it. So we're to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. In which case, if they pass, they're described as being the spirit of the spirit of God or the spirit of truth, verse 6. Or if they fail the assessment, then they're false prophets speaking on behalf of a spirit of error or falsehood, verse 6, or even the Antichrist, verse 3. So we see in these early chapters of Acts, for example, that as the little uh, early church exploded onto the first century scene and expanded very rapidly, there was, in the early chapters of Acts particularly, uh, a satanic counterattack against them, trying to halt the spread of the Christian faith throughout the world as God intended. So they are told to test because there are plenty of false teachers around or false prophets around in their day. But we also need to test. Often we are far too gullible. Depending on our personal inclinations, we can be taken in by error, whether it's expressed in kind of mystical vibes, whether it's excitable, whether it's contemporary, or whether it's traditional, or whether it's erudite in its packaging. But all that is cosmetic. You have to see the content and examine that. We'll be taken in if we're attracted to the packaging rather than assessing the content. You see, we need to test it. And John orders them to do so. 
And this is the criterion for assessment that's mentioned here. The test is whether Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. Whether the human being who was Jesus from Nazareth was the long-expected divine son of God. That's the test. Now, it's so important to have a fully human person to represent the human race before God. And it's essential to have a fully divine person because only they could be perfect and so be an effective substitute for us and for our sins before God. Anything less than that will not work. So Jesus must be fully human and fully divine to bring about our salvation by being a perfect substitute for our sins before God who is our judge. Acknowledge that truth and the speaker is from God. Failure to acknowledge that truth and he speaks ultimately from one who is against Christ. Hence the term the Antichrist, the devil, verse 3. The line that was peddled by the false teachers has to be refuted and rejected. And finally, there's the character of the audience in verses 4 to 6. And there are three very emphatic personal pronouns here. There's you, verse 4, there's they, verse 5, and there's we, verse 6. He says to them, you are from God and have overcome them, them being the false teachers, verse 4. The recipients of John's letter had not succumbed to the false teachers. They'd not been taken in. They had overcome them. The false teachers had left, gone out from among them. How come? He says, the one, that's Jesus, or the spirit of Jesus, who is within you is greater than the one, that's the devil, who is in the world. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, has not only inspired the record of Jesus' life, work, and teaching, for example, John's Gospel, but the Holy Spirit has also illuminated the Christian's mind so that they compare the teaching from the false prophets with the teaching of the true apostles who had seen, heard, and touched Jesus in the flesh. So in addition to the objective standard, which is the written word of God, the Bible, the apostolic testimony, John says we can have a subjective standard with the Holy Spirit living in us, illuminating our God-given minds as we contrast one with the other. And then in 5 and 6, John goes on to develop this thought as he contrasts the false prophets with the true apostles. They, the false prophets, are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And surprise, surprise, the world listens to them. They can get a very popular hearing. Let me explain. If you imagine that uh, this Bible is the biblical line, some false teachers operate above the line and some below it. Those who operate above it tend to add to the biblical line. They particularly tend to um, stress what is really for the not yet, 
for the life to come, they tend to stress that it is available now. Though they might, for example, peddle the so-called health and wealth distortion. Basically, if only we have enough faith, then uh, God wants us to be healthy and wealthy because God wants the best things for us. But of course, there's no such promise of that in the Bible. It is a distortion. Or it might be a slightly toned down version of that and uh, the Christian faith is kind of presented essentially as uh, Willie just sort of uh, fillets out all the nice bits. You know, you can have peace. You can feel good. You can be happy. You can be in with a cool crowd. You can have emotional highs, etc. Without, of course, saying much about sin and forgiveness and pride and obedience and faithfulness. It's a kind of lopsided sort of quasi-Christian offering. It's the kind of teaching which some say can degenerate into merely life coaching. But then there's those who peddle the below-the-line stuff. They tend to sort of subtract from the Bible. So, for example, if kind of the miracles in here are just too hard to believe in, well, explain them away. If judgment and hell are really not to our liking, well, filter them out. If Christian morality is seemingly too restrictive, well, try a bit of uh, sophistry, some sort of clever arguing. Say to yourself, look, yeah, the Bible says that is wrong, but that is not what we're doing now. And so the silence, the vacuum, is filled by basically doing what you like. It's quite clever. Quite obviously, if you trim the gospel to suit the world, you'll be popular. But only for a time. The Gnostics didn't last. But, verse 6, John says, We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So John is saying to his audience that you can be sure that you pass the doctrinal test if you listen and respond positively to apostolic teaching. That inner witness of the Holy Spirit in your lives enables you to recognize that what he, as an apostle, is writing has the ring of truth about it. But the converse is also true. You can be sure that someone is not from God if they don't listen to the apostles' teaching and thereby fail the test. You see, we can be safe from error if we listen to the apostles, whose teaching we heard at the point that we were converted. Their teaching is our access to the living Christ. We have to go through them, because they're the only ones that know. That's the only record that there is. And if we continue to hear from the apostles, the one who, ones who saw, heard, and touched Jesus from the, the beginning, then we're with him. You see, all teaching that anybody says, whether it's in church or outside of church, all viewpoints that are out there in the marketplace of ideas for, Chris, for, for living, 
all those have to be subordinate to the apostles' teaching. So three tests then. A moral test, obedience in our lives to the teaching of the apostles. And we have to ask ourselves how we're doing. Do we conform to it? The social test, love of fellow Christians. Or does something need changing in our relationship with somebody to reach a pass mark in that test? And the doctrinal test, are you too gullible? Do you go for image over substance? Do you believe and know the apostolic Jesus? Or something which sounds similar, but which is in fact a counterfeit? Apply the test to yourself, and you hopefully can gain confidence and assurance. Apply the test to all that you read and hear and see, and you can avoid straying into error. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might uh, know that what the Apostle writes has a ring of truth about it. We pray that we might conform our lives in our thinking, in our attitude, and in our behavior uh, to that of our Heavenly Father. We pray that we might use these tests to assess all that comes across our path. May we gain in confidence and avoid being led astray. Amen.